Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. How's everybody out there in podcast land? Welcome to Who Gets to Decide? Well, you know, after the other day when I was talking about CRT in the 1619 project, um, I got to thinking about what I just spent the time talking about. And, you know, this is such a divisive and important thing because it, it impacts our, our children and children's minds are easily, I don't know, they're, they're easily persuaded or easily manipulated into certain ways of thinking. And I just, I just wanted to spend a little time, a little bit more time today talking about this. There's a, Chuck Todd had a couple other people that he was asking questions uh, to, and I thought, you know, I just thought there would be some value in continuing this conversation. So, um, just to bring you up to speed on Meet the Press, um, Sunday, the, I think it was the, the day after Christmas, 26th, I think. Uh, Chuck Todd had some people on and they were talking about CRT, critical race theory, and the 1619 project. And basically I was making the case that this is really all about power. And then these people he had on these, on his show were essentially politicos, activists, um, masquerading as journalists. I, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of talking heads out there today that call themselves journalists and, um, you know, they're really not journalists. They're, they're just mouthpieces for the corporate media and the, the political class, the, the elite political class. These people all, they all swim in the same fish tank, right? They go to the same cocktail parties, talk about the same things. And, you know, one, before you know it, you believe everything. I mean, you could probably, I could probably go into Washington, D.C. and and spend two years there, and I would probably come out speaking exactly the same language they speak today. So it's a, it's a toxic kind of place in that um, there's just no dissenting opinion anywhere in Washington, D.C. And so I think it's especially hard to have uh, conversations that, have dissenting point of views. And, um, but I still contend that this is really about power. It's about control of the schools. Um, they don't like, when I say they, I mean the liberal and elite class, they don't like the fact that parents have a lot of influence over these school boards, just like they don't like the fact that parents have a lot of influence over their kids over, you know, in the family. They don't believe in family. They don't believe in individual liberty. They believe in groupthink. I think they have a kind of a group narcissistic thinking about themselves and the group. Um, and also victim victimization. They have a kind of a group victimization attitude. So I just want to pick back up on that today. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, Switch it over to Chuck Todd. He's going to ask a couple questions here of uh, another African-American studies guy, a guy named Keith Mays. And uh, we're just going to comment on these uh, questions.
are Keith Mays, an associate professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota, and Joshua Johnson, anchor of Now Tonight, my colleague. Keith, let me frame the conversation this way. Rashid Darden in Education Week back in 2018 wrote the following, and I think it, it very much is true today. Students don't typically have a great understanding of the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Jim Crow South, the racist North. There's really not much after Harriet Tubman until we get to the Civil Rights Movement. Their body of knowledge is focused on those couple of things rather than the interconnectedness, the intersections. And, and I think that's why I want to have this conversation and not almost utter the words uh, critical race theory, because really what this is about is how do we improve the education of history in America? You know, improving the education of history in America is a challenge because a lot of things, including history, has been co-opted by government, um, university institutions that get a lot of money from government. And it, it really shapes the way history is told. Um, for example, you can... You can um, you can see this in all the the rankings of who's the greatest president of ever you know of all time, and typically it's you know George Washington and then Abraham Lincoln and so on and so forth. But if you really study uh, the presidents and measured them fairly, let's say based on how they kept their oath of office, you would get a completely different list. Uh, Brian McClanahan does this. He has a book. I forgot how many presidents he covers, but he covers several. And he goes through the 10 best and the 10 worst, I think. And so I think, you know, history has to be taught in a way that, and by people that are not co-opted by government and blackballed from institutions because they have a a different uh, set of facts, as the left likes to say. And it's really not a different set of facts. I mean, if somebody is reading the original uh, uh, manuscripts of somebody, of some important figure in history, and is writing about that person, I, I don't see how that can be a different set of facts. I mean, you're reading the original, you know, script. So... So in, in the spirit of that, I'm going to read something here uh, to you, and I think it's I think it's I think it's a good example of how history really is not told to us properly, and involves Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. So I'm reading from G. Edward Griffin's book called "The Creature from Jekyll Island," and if you have this book. Uh, you can go to page 370 and you can follow along with me. But if you don't have this book, I highly recommend you getting it and reading it from cover to cover. There's a lot of history in this book that is not told um, to our kids, our college kids, and so on and so forth. It's about a 1,500-page read, so you're going to have to be pretty committed but it's a great book, and it's about the Federal Reserve, how the Federal Reserve cre is create was created, uh, what the Federal Reserve does, how it buys influence with um, the power to create money, 
and to expand credit. Anyway, it's a great book. And of course, there's a lot of there's a lot of history around banking and the the power around banking and government influence around banking. And surprise, surprise, there was even footprints or fingerprints of the banking system around the Civil War. But on page 370, I'm going to start here. It says, there are many popular myths about the cause of the war between the states. Just as the Bolshevik Revolution is commonly believed to have been spontaneous, a spontaneous mass uprising against a tyrannical aristocracy, so too is it generally accepted that the Civil War was fought over the issue of slavery. That, at best, is a half-truth. Slave, slavery was an issue, but the primary force for war was a clash between the economic interest of the North and the South. Even the issue of slavery itself was based on economics. It may have been a moral issue in the North, where prosperity was derived from the machines of heavy industry, but in the agrarian South, where fields had to be tended by vast workforces of human labor, the issue was primarily a matter of economics. The relative unimportance of slavery as a cause for war made clear by Lincoln himself during his campaign for the presidency in 1860, and he repeated that message in his first inaugural address. Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that by accession of Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it now exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Even after the outbreak of war in 1861, Lincoln confirmed his previous stand when he declared, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save, the, save it by freeing all of the slaves, I would do it. And if I could do it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. It may come a surprise, as a surprise to learn that by strict definition, Abraham Lincoln was a white supremacist. In his fourth debate with Senator Stephen Douglas, he addressed this subject bluntly. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together in terms of social and political equality. And, and inasmuch as they cannot live while they do remain together, they must be the position of superior and inferior. And I am much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Now, how is that for some history that you probably didn't know and didn't learn in school? That's a very different look at Lincoln than the, I don't know, the New York Times annual survey that 
has George Washington at the top of the greatest presidents list and Lincoln right behind him. So I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to come back to this book in just a second, but I want to switch gears and go back to Chuck Todd in this conversation because I just want to embed some of this truth into this conversation because these guys are these talking heads. They just talk, 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 but they're not really saying anything. And these are their opinions. And like I said, mostly they're just activists. From Texas talking about not wanting white children to be taught that they're superior just because they're white and that black children are inferior just because they're black. That is a huge win. Think about what that means. In the context of the history of this country, having a white person say they don't want their white children taught that? Yeah, think about what that means. Because in 1861, I just read to you that Lincoln himself fought that Negroes were inferior to white men. And here you got these people, they're wanting to bring this back into your school system. What the hell for? Look at the struggle. How, I mean, it was it was 100 years between when Rink, Lincoln wrote this and we had basically had the civil rights movement in, a, uh, in America. Do we want to have another 100 years going in the wrong direction? I mean, what the hell are these people thinking? So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how Lincoln wrote that in, in 1861. And basically, the civil rights movement happened in 18, uh, excuse me, 1965. So we, we do not want to go back to that. And I think these parents are spot on to be worried about this. I don't know what these, again, I don't know what these people's agenda is or I don't know what they're up to. I really don't. But they do not understand history. They don't know shit about it. And they shouldn't be allowed to write uh, the 1619 Project or any other kind of project and infuse that into our public schools. We have the system we have for a reason. And it's so crap like this doesn't get in. Bad ideas are swarming all over this country. And the last place we need to have these bad ideas is in school. You know, Keith, one of the things I've thought about is, you know, it was 1975 that, a, that the president then, Gerald Ford, uh, essentially declared February Black History Month. And it has served as a tool for educators to at least begin a, uh, some teaching of African-American history. Um, there's a part of me that thinks if, if President Biden, if we didn't have that and President Biden declared it today, we'd be having a, uh, um, an, a very polarizing conversation about it. <laughs> Absolutely right, Chuck. Because, you know, the, the extension of uh, Black History Month from Negro History Week, the great Carter G. Woodson created that uh, back in the uh, 1920s, and it really flourished in the 1930s and 40s. That was the way that we actually taught black history in public schools for many decades, this week uh, of celebration. And, and, and what Carter G. Woodson envisioned was this thing that scholars call contributionism. You know, what is the black contribution to science and, and, and mm -hmm. uh, business and education? And that was a kind of a, a easy, fluffy history to place the black uh, contribution side by side with, with whites. But the civil rights movement did something very important. It demanded that black history uh, is not embraced uh, 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 just in one week of February, but we want to actually begin to talk about what it means to be to be black all year round. 
And so the, it's really the American bicentennial moment in uh, 1976, Chuck, mm -hmm. that opens up the calendar to extend that week into uh, a th a three additional weeks into one whole month. But I have to say that uh, black history is still ossified and frozen uh, in time in that one month in the calendar year. And then once uh, February 28th or 29th, depending on the, the year, once that, that goes, we are uh, back to, to, to really talking about, not talking about black history and the concerns of African-Americans uh, and, and their, their, uh, the things that, that they care about, whether it's social justice movements or what have you, we don't revisit it again until the next year. So this perennializing, this right. annualizing of black history that's been around uh, since Carter, since the early days of Carter G. Woodson, we have not really moved beyond that uh, even in 2021. And that feels like, Joshua, how this debate opened up is that there are educators who are trying to say, you know, it, it isn't a month. This is American history. Uh, good, bad, ugly, American history. And it seems that this is where the pushback comes in. Uh, look, I'm a cynic. This feels like it's almost all being done for political gain short term. Um, I, I'm an optimist. I think over time we'll get better at this, but I guess the question is how long is it going to take? You know, I brought this up in part one, but I don't understand why there, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I don't understand why there needs to even be a Black History Month. No other race in our country has its own history month. I mean, this is, uh, you know, President Ford created this back in 1975 and I think it was just some sort of pandering thing, some sort of political ploy. I mean, there is no really history. I mean, uh, blacks are a part of American history. There is no black history uh, separate from America. I mean, that that's that's impossible. I mean, there could be that blacks had certain experiences. Clearly, with slavery, they had certain experiences that other people didn't experience, but that's all documented in history. I don't understand why we have this separation for Black History Month. This is a, this is a, oh, what is the term they use? Uh, not a fabrication, but a, a social construct. This is a social construct. If ever there was a social construct, like, you know, they're always talking about gender as a social construct. No, gender is biology. But this, what they're talking about here, is actually a social construct. There's, there's nothing. It's, I don't, I don't understand how this exists outside of American history. Uh, because, in fact, if you if you go to other parts of the world, there's other blacks in in the world. And so, talking about black history as if it only happened in America seems a little bit, I don't know, um, what's the word? Isolationist? <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that. But again, American history includes blacks. It includes Irish people, people from Italy, people from Germany, people from Poland, people that came here from all over the world and later Africans from other parts of Africa, Kenya and places like that, people from South America, Central America. We can't, there, there is no separate history for everybody. And there is nothing about our history that um, 
that is, uh, what was the term earlier that somebody used? Uh, there's nothing today that's recognizable that hasn't been touched by slavery. That's, that's just crazy talk. It really is. Now, one of the things Keith did mention that I think is, is very good. And, and I remember studying this in school, um, is contributions by black inventors, uh, farmers, business people, stuff like that. Because I, I think it's important for, you know, young black people to identify with somebody right now. They identify with LeBron James and, but you know, there's, there used to be like really impressive people and there still are. I, I shouldn't say that there's not uh, Thomas soul is a very impressive person. Walter Williams, before he died, very impressive person. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, very impressive person. Candace Owens, I think, is a very impressive person. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. There's so many impressive black people today that we have a lot of examples. But maybe, you know, in the 70s, we didn't have a lot of examples. I don't know. I don't remember. But I I still think that's a good thing is to have – that contribution contributionism is what Keith Mays was talking about. Um, I thought it was interesting at the end here where Chuck Todd says, you know, I'm a cynic. It feels a little like short-term politics, something to that political gain. And I think, you know, when he said that, I think he meant that the election of Glenn Youngkin, uh, Youngkin was somehow short-term political gain. But when I first heard him say that, what I thought it meant, what I thought he meant was that this whole intrusion into the school system with critical race theory and um, uh, the sixteen nineteen project was short term political gain. So I thought that was interesting. He said that it was almost depending on which side of this you're on and how you look at it, you could actually take that either way. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Another thing I wanted to mention is just this idea that somehow slavery is like a uniquely American thing. Um, people talk about this as if this didn't exist anywhere else in the world. You know, you can read the Bible today and it talks about slaves or servants, but there were basically people that were, you know, being conscripted against their will to do work, whether it be in the house or in the fields. So this is not a uniquely American uh, feature of history. This is, this is a uh, very common, this was very common in this, you know, certainly during the time, you know, the, the 17th, 18th century, the time America was being formed. Um, this was a very common deal. So I, I just, I went online and just, found a couple of facts just to rattle off here. There were roughly 11 million slaves brought to the Americas, that's North and South America, during the time that uh, that uh, the United States engaged in uh, purchasing of slaves. Roughly 5% of those went to the U.S. An estimated 40% were brought to Brazil. So eight times, eight times as many slaves out of that 11 million were brought to Brazil over the U.S. And somehow this is uniquely American. I mean, come on, give me a break. 
Thomas Jefferson's, Thomas Jefferson's administration in 1808 outlawed the importation of slaves. Um, Muslims captured European Christians and made them slaves. Russia enslaved uh, Crimeans, Polish, and other Europeans were sources of slaves, roughly 2 million between 1500 and 1774. So this is not a uniquely American issue. Um, this is... This was a global phenomenon, and it was in decline. That's another factoid that a lot of people won't let you know about, is that slavery was very much in decline. It was already ended in, in Great Britain, and it was well on its way uh, out, of, out of favor in, in the United States, um, and probably within... 50 years would have been eradicated easily. So here's some, here's some other countries. So 1865, U.S., it's generally agreed that the U.S. abolished slavery. In 1886, so that's after 1865, Cuba abolished slavery. 1888, Brazil. 1962, Saudi Arabia. 1981, Mauritania. I think I said that right. And even Lincoln himself, right up until the Emancipation Proclamation, was trying to broker deals with other countries around the world about basically deporting the slaves in America. So Lincoln is not, he's not the great emancipator, okay? Yes, that's what he did, but he did that for reasons that were political and had to do with getting more people to fight in the, the war against the South. Nobody wanted to fight the South, okay? Nobody. Lincoln could not find enough people, men, to fight in the South, okay? Along comes the Emancipation Proclamation. He makes it this moral deal, and people start signing up to fight the South. So that's, that's the Lincoln history there, the short suite of it. Now I want to read this, um, cause we always hear about the civil war and I want to just make a comment on the civil war. The civil, a civil war is a conflict where two political entities are fighting over the control of the whole. Okay. That's not what was happening in the 1860s. When, when the southern states seceded, they left the Union. They joined the Union willingly, and they felt like they could leave the Union willingly. And that's what they did. Now, Lincoln, as I read earlier, was all about saving the Union. So the obvious question is, you know, why did the Union need saving? And so I'm going to begin reading again from page 371. If Lincoln's primary goal in the war was not the abolition of slavery, but simply to preserve the Union, the question arises, why did the Union need preserving? Or more pointedly, why did the southern states want to secede? So this again, I'm reading from um, 
G, G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Um, could probably order it directly from G. Edward Griffin if it's not on Amazon. So on, I, I've moved on now to page 372. And the subheading on this page is Legal, legal Plunder, Not Slavery, The Cause of War. Now, before I start reading this, I want, I want to remind you that I told you about a guy named Frederick Bastiat, who wrote an essay called The Law back in the 1850s. And in this essay, what Bastiat said is he said, the purpose of the law is to protect liberty and to protect property. And if you do anything other than those two things, you get a perversion of the law. Okay? And a perversion of the law just means that you, you create a scenario where one party can legally plunder another party because there's a law and the law gives them the right to do whatever it is they're doing to meet their financial or political goals. So now I'm on page 372. I'll begin reading. The South, being predominantly an agricultural region, had to import practically all of its manufactured goods from the northern states or Europe, both of which reciprocated by providing market for the South's cotton. However, many of the textiles manufactured items were considerably cheaper from Europe, even after the cost of shipping had been added. The southern states, therefore, often found it to their advantage to purchase these European goods rather than those made in the North. This put considerable competitive pressure on the American manufacturers to lower their prices and operate more efficiently. The Republicans were not satisfied with that arrangement. They decided to use the power of the federal government to tip the scales of com- competition in their favor, claiming that this was, the nas- uh, this was in the national interest. Does that sound familiar, by the way, in the national interest? They levied stiff import duties on almost every item coming from Europe that was also manufactured in the North. Not surprisingly, there was no duty applied to cotton, which presumably was not a commodity in the national interest. One result was that European countries uh, countered by stopping the purchase of U.S. cotton, which badly hurt the Southern economy. The other result was the manufacturers of the North were able to charge higher prices without fear of competition, and the South was forced to pay more for practically all of its necessities. It was a classic case of legalized plunder, in which the law was used to enrich one group of citizens at the expense of another. Pressure from the North against slavery in the South made matters even more volatile. A fact often overlooked in this episode is that the cost of a slave was very high, around $1,500 each. A modest plantation with only 40 or 50 slaves, therefore, had a large capital investment, which in terms of today's purchasing power represented millions of dollars to the South. To the South, therefore, abolition meant not only the loss of its ability to produce a cash crop, but the total destruction of an enormous capital base. Many Southern plantation owners were working toward the day when they could convert their investment to more profitable industrial production as had been done in the North, and others felt that freemen were were paid wages would be more efficient than slaves who had no incentive to work. For the present, however, they were stuck with the system they inherited. They felt that a complete and sudden abolition of slavery with no transition period would destroy their economy and leave many of them 
many, many of the former slaves to starve, all of which actually happened in due course. That was the situation that existed at the time of Lincoln's campaign and why in his speeches he attempted to calm the fears of the South about his intentions, but his words were mostly political rhetoric. Lincoln was a Republican, and he was totally dependent on the Northern industrialists who controlled the party. Even if he had wanted to, and there is no indication that he did, he could not have reversed the trend of economic favoritism and protectionism that swept him into office. So there you have it. That uh, actually happened. So no, there was no civil war, first of all. There was only a war, an, a, uh, an invasion of the southern states who tried to leave the Union. And Lincoln basically decided to kill a half a million people in order to keep that from happening. And he used slavery as a political tool to do it. So let that sink in. And when you're watching the news and they're talking about the national interest here or the national interest there, see if you can figure out what's really going on. Because I promise you there's something more to what's going on than what these talking heads are saying on TV. I think it's happening. I mean, there's another piece of the equation that we can't forget, and that's young people themselves. Mm -hmm. This debate about talking about race is over. Mm -hmm.